comes from the book of Proverbs. If I may digress for a moment from my prepared message, I mean it when I say to you, You guys! Sometimes you're bad! Don't be jerks! You're supposed to be good! I'm in my office every day, and somebody comes in, and they're like, Hey, whoops! I'm like, don't! Dan, what is your deal? If anybody doesn't know, Dan is the worst. I took a vow to not say who was the worst, but it's Dan. You guys are making me look bad in front of God. What's that? Oh, look, it's Jesus. And he said, stop it. The word of the Lord. I'm not sure who in my family found that and posted it on our little uh, siblings text group. And I said, I got to share that at church. That's just too funny. Oh, especially that line, Dan, you're the worst. <laughs> we only have one Dan here today, so the other Dan's not around. Oh, very good. Very, very good. All right. Love you, Dan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're not the worst. Yeah. All right. There we go. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. One of the most iconic, one of the most memorable verses in the Bible. Actually, one of the most comforting verses in the Bible, if you stop and think about this verse. And we love to recite this when we get to, like, uh, you know, um, funerals and whatnot. And it's a very comforting verse. But I wonder, it's, it's comforting, it's also a very freeing verse. I wonder, does this describe our life? Do we, do we really, I think we read verses sometimes and we don't really hear what we're reading. Do we really live lives that don't want? Like we don't want for anything. And I think sometimes we don't approach life that way. We're like, well, if I just had a few more hours or a few more dollars or a few more opportunities or a few more breaks or a few more skills or a few more connections, if I just had what that other person had, my life would be perfect. Um, and yet we know that's not true, right? We know the adage, really, basically, that all that more produces is the desire for more. We're never happy. In fact, I found this fascinating study from Harvard Business School from 2018. Um, it's a first-of-a-kind study of over 4,000 millionaires in the United States asking them about how much money it would take to make them happy. Each millionaire was asked to report how much they currently had, how happy they were on a scale of 1 to 10, and then how much money they thought they would need to get to a 10 on the happiness scale. Shockingly, 26%, the largest response was assigned to 10 times more, the largest possible option given in this test. 24% chose 5%, 5 times more, followed by 23% at 2 times more, and only 13% of respondents said they currently had enough to be happy. 
Perhaps most surprising of all, this answer was consistent no matter how much money a person had. This means that someone with 100 million was just as likely as the person with 10 million to select they needed 10 times the amount of money they had to be truly happy. In an interview, interview with The Atlantic, lead researcher Michael Norton suggested that the problem for so many millionaires is comparison. So the question of happiness is not so much do I have enough, but do I have more than those around me? Norton concluded if a family amasses $50 million but moves into a neighborhood where everyone else has more money, they still won't be happy. All the way up the spectrum of wealth, basically everyone says they'd need two or three times as much to be perfectly happy. Pretty, pretty amazing. And I wonder where does the comparison trap, you know, entrap us, entrap you, entrap me. Like, where do we get caught up in this whole thing where we're caught comparing ourselves to others in order to find some level of happiness? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We're in week five of our series, Detoxify, and today we're talking about this issue of envy and contentment and jealousy. The world can be a toxic place, navigate it with a spirit of discernment and grace. We live in a very toxic world. We need discernment and grace. And as we looked, as we were looking in this series at, you know, all kinds of things, relationships and, and behaviors and beliefs and attitudes, even environments, all the, the toxic things around us, we need this discernment and grace. And today we'll see how we need this when it comes to this issue of envy, when it comes to this issue of comparison and resentment and jealousy. We talked last week about anger, and this is closely related to this issue of anger. Hebrews 12, 15, see, it to that, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So we talked about that root of bitterness last week, and I would say that really, if you want to really understand this, like bitterness can be the root of the fruit, but in, in a real sense, envy and comparison and uh, resentment are kind of like the roots of bitterness. They're what produce the bitterness in our life, and we often don't think about that. In fact, somebody said it this way, envy has been noted as the least fun sin, the least fun sin. And so today, as we look at this, the roots of bitterness and envy and jealousy, we're talking about the sin that's the least fun, and yet it entraps us and it ensnares us. Here's the quote, actually, the essayist Joseph Epstein writes, Of the seven deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. There's plenty of research to back up Epstein's statement. Psychologists have found that envy decreases life satisfaction and depresses well-being. Envy is positively correlated with depression and (laughs) neuroticism. And the hostility it breeds may actually make us sick. Recent work suggests that envy can help explain our complicated relationship with social media. It often leads to destructive social comparison, which decreases um, happiness. And so, oh, Epstein goes on to say that envy makes us look ungenerous, mean, and small-hearted. No wonder nobody wants to own up to this unhappy sin. Nobody does. The ABCs of envy... Envy is the default position of the angry old man. We talk about the angry old man who I used to be before I was saved. Before I was saved, envy, that defined my heart. That's just who I was. I was envious. I was jealous. I was resentful. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm no longer envious in my heart. It's not who I am. But sometimes I think like that old man and I think I'm envy and I think I want what someone else has and I really don't. 
And then envy is more prevalent in the Bible than we would realize. I compiled a huge list of scriptures this week to get into this study and I didn't use like hardly any of them because of how this message plays out but but it just struck me how this this issue of envy and comparison is so prevalent throughout throughout the Bible there are so many scriptures that deal with this issue and then envy is often the undetected is often undetected in our life because it is really this kind of this root that leads to bitterness. And so envy is kind of like in my life, but I don't really realize it's there. I don't realize how poisonous it is, how toxic it is to me, and how it is impacting my happiness and my joy and my health. Envy is often undetected in our life. And so sometimes we need to stop, and we need that discernment, and we need that grace, and we need to look into our life and say, okay, um, why am I angry? Why am I bitter? What's going on? What's the story behind my anger? And we might find there's some envy and some resentment attached to this very, very issue. Remember the verse we talked about, our key verse, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Meaning a little sin impacts the whole body, impacts your whole life. And so just a little envy is going to impact your life. It is. Envy gets in and envy, like gangrene, will spread through your life and will consume you. And comparison will consume you. Proverbs 14.30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. And so the scriptures are very clear about this issue of envy. Now this morning, we're going to talk about the comparison trap here. And uh, we're going to talk about this reality, the negative side of comparison. The comparison that is fueled by envy, jealousy, and resentment. It is true that comparison could have a positive side. Today we will look at its darker side. And the big idea behind this whole message is a real simple phrase I heard. A bitter root, bitter root will produce sour fruit. A bitter root like envy or resentment or comparison will produce sour fruit in our life. And we'll see that in the story we go into today. There's a story, a classic story in the Old Testament. The classic sibling rivalry between Leah and Rachel. We're going to see this play out. We'll see that a bitter root will produce sour fruit. In both of their lives, but especially focusing today on Leah, although Rachel has her issues with envy as well. All right, let's jump in the comparison trap today. Then we're going to see today three warnings and then two kind of solutions at the end of this message. We'll start in Genesis 29. Here's what it says. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel. And so we see the story start out here. Three warnings about the comparison trap. And the first warning, just, just let this sink in a minute here, right? That comparison cedes the power to others to determine my worth. Comparison will cede the power to others to determine my worth, like my value. Like that, it's not no longer in-house. I'm not sitting here looking in the mirror and saying, I'm valuable or I'm worthy, but I'm, I'm giving that power to somebody else. And does that make sense? Now, this plays its, itself out in two ways, comparison. On, on one hand, there's the issue of pride. Like, comparison can make me feel proud, like I'm better than you. I'm more important than you. I have an exaggerated sense of self-worth and self-value and, and an exaggerated sense, really, of security. I find it in myself. At the same time, though, and this is Leah's case today. We're going to see this primarily that it can produce shame in our life. Like we don't measure up. Like, like we're, we're not that significant. We're not that important compared to the people around us. And we get trapped in this and we start measuring ourselves by some really uh, false realities. 
Now, I find it fascinating in the story because it paints the picture that Rachel is very beautiful, but then it describes Leah with her weak eyes. That's how it describes Leah, her weak eyes. What do those weak eyes represent? Well, I think on one hand, they they talk about her lack of self-confidence. Like, it's just her lack of self-confidence. Maybe it's that hidden sense of shame that she feels because she doesn't measure up. But it seems throughout the story, we're going to see Leah longing for three things from Jacob. She's going to want his affirmation, his attention, and his affection. She desperately wants this. Affirmation, attention, and affection. So Leah has a lack of self-confidence. But then we also see this idea of weak eyes, and it it also can mean this. We can look at it from the eyes standpoint. And this would be how how, how others see Leah. Like other people look into Leah's eyes and they see, like, like we look into someone's eyes and we can see deeply inside them sometimes and they would look into hers and they would see her lack of confidence. Her eyes will project a sense of shame and insecurity. And so the weak eyes here, it's, it's how others, when they look at Leah, they see her weak eyes and they see inside her soul and they see her insecurities. At the same time, these weak eyes also represent how Leah sees herself. Like we all do this, we all look in the mirror, right? We look in the mirror, we see ourselves and we, we, we are somebody. We, we, we value ourselves in some way. And this is really important. I've told you many times before, stand in front of the mirror and just see who you are in Christ. Just affirm who you are in Christ. Look in, into your own eyes. But, but also at the same time, as, as she looks not just into the mirror, but as she looks into the eyes of other people, she's going to see a reflection of herself. She's going to value herself and measure herself as to how other people see her. And this is where a vicious cycle strikes in, right? Because here's this person who's insecure and feeling ashamed and feeling like she doesn't measure up. She projects this with her eyes. People read that from her own face and her own eyes and then she reads it in, in, as people read her and it just reinforces all of her feelings. It's a vicious, vicious cycle. And this is what comparison does as it cedes the power to someone else to determine my value, my worth. Hmm. It's a sad reality. I, I heard a, sport, a, a sports commentator one time talking about football players and quarterbacks in the NFL. However, over time, quarterbacks kind of seem to be good looking. And he made the assessment that these, really, th- that these quarterbacks that are really good are also good looking. And he said, it could be that because they were good looking, they developed more confidence in life. They carried themselves with more confidence. Um, people just... Uh, kind of followed them and and uh, they they became natural leaders just because of how they looked on the outside it's a sad reality but it could be very true and it could be what's going on in leah's life she's not as beautiful as her sister she's not as confident as her sister she projects that and then she measures herself by how the world sees her Here's the deal, if I have to measure up to some superficial or worldly standard in order to feel good about myself, I will never what? Feel good about myself. Talked about that a few weeks ago, right? Magazines that were with airbrushed you know, celebrities on them and we're trying to measure up to what we see. Back on Mother's Day, I shared this verse and I think it really fits in again this morning. Do not let your adorning, speaking to Christian wives and, and Christian women, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And that's a word of advice for all of us this morning, men and women today. We have this 
reality of, of Christ being our identity. And, and may people look inside of us and may they see the inner beauty of our heart. Going on here, look at this. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. So, ja- so she's married to Jacob and Jacob's grandmother let people see the beauty hidden inside of her heart as she walked in relationship with God. And the reality is today, it's so much easier for us today because Christ has come to live in us and we can let people see Christ in us, can we not? Reality check, may people see the beauty of my confidence in Christ. When they look into my eyes, may they see a confident person, not an arrogant person, but a confident person who knows who they are in Christ and will not let this world define them and tear them down and say what their value or worth is or isn't. Before we go on here, just one last note, just a word, uh, a vital lesson for all us parents and especially for us dads. One of the sadder realities in this story, and we're going to see this as we read on here, is that, is that Leah's dad, instead of building up her self-confidence and, and helping her have, you know, comp- he kind of like drives her into this comparison trap. Listen to this. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the palace and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zippah to his daughter Leah, excuse me, to be her servant. And in the morning, behold... It was Leah. And in this sad story, I always find this line kind of humorous because it's like Jacob, the great deceiver, who was deceived. And he wakes up and rolls over in bed and it's like, wait a minute, you're not Rachel. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. And here's the sad reality. Do you see how Laban, Leah's dad, used her to get maybe seven years of work out of Jacob? How he just kind of maybe found a way to, to trick someone to just get rid of her, to get, get her off his hands? And how he actually, as her dad, kind of plays into this toxic reality of how she sees herself and the comparison trap. He didn't build her up. He tore her down again a bitter root like resentment or envy will produce sour fruit will produce the sour fruit that we want to avoid here's a second warning comparison leads to compromise comparison will lead to compromise when we get caught up in the comparison trap, it is easy to make compromises, compromises that can turn out to be costly. Now, there are two questions we're confronted with here. Number one, was Laban being honest? Was this really the custom that you didn't marry off the, the younger daughter before the older daughter? Well, I don't think so. I think it's an excuse. Because if it was really a custom he, was, he cared about, he would have told Jacob ahead of time, well, you can't marry Rachel. You got to marry Leah first, and then you can marry, then you can marry Rachel. But he didn't tell him that. He tricked him. And that leads us to the second question. What role did Leah play in the deception? 
Did she play any role? And you got to stop and say, she had to play some role. She had to know that Jacob loved her sister. She had to know what her dad was up to. She maybe, some say she helped concoct a plan with him. It's a sad reality when you stop and look at this, but comparison leads to compromise. Over in chapter 30, later on in the story, there's this time when Rachel and Leah have words, and and this is what Leah says, "Is is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? So Leah looked at Rachel and said, you've taken away my husband, like I married him first. Like she really did want Jacob to be her husband, and maybe she... You know, she compromised her character and her values and whatnot to manipulate her way into Jacob's hands. But getting into his heart, we'll see that was a much more difficult reality. We may compromise our character. That's one thing we may compromise our character, who we are. So much for the inner beauty of a spirit that sought after the heart of God. So much for, you know, what, she, what, what you could see in Jacob's uh, grandmother, Sarah. For trusting and depending on God. For finding your value in God. And on some level, you wonder if Jacob doesn't look at Rachel and see, hey, you deceived me too. Or Leah, like, you deceived me too. You're in on this whole deception thing. She compromised her character. You know, I see this all the time, and I was thinking about that this week, is... You watch all these shows all the time, like you watch American Idol or you watch The Voice or all these. And, and how many people say, where'd you get your start singing? Oh, I got my start singing in the church. Like, like they, they learned how to sing in the church. And, and then once you get out in the real world and you want to become a star, you have to compromise your values. You have to compromise who you are and where you started from. And what a sad reality as you can throw your values and you can throw your character out the window just so you become famous and you become popular. We may compromise our confidence. This kind of goes back to the first point, but this is the reality that when you get caught up in the issue of comparison, you're always going to be living and asking, do I measure up? It's a constant pursuit to prove yourself acceptable to the world. Go back to Leah for a moment. To be honest, the years to come will be difficult for her. As this story unfolds, Leah's going to have a very difficult life. Like if she was caught in this sibling rivalry with her sister before, it's just going to get elevated. It's just going to get worse because now you're both married to the same man. And just think about this. Watch what happens here next in the story. Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so, completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Billa to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also and loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. And so I want you to understand Leah's situation here. She's been married to Jacob for a week and already he's got a second wife, the one he really loves Rachel. It's like it didn't, it didn't take seven years. It's, like, it's not like she had seven years to win his heart over. It's like, no, at the end of those seven days, then Rachel joined the family. And you love that phrase there, right? And he, Jacob, loved Rachel more than Leah. This is the contention. I mean, the reality is he worked 14 years for Rachel. He might not have worked today for Leah, but he worked 14 years for Rachel. And this is where she's at because she is caught, into, caught in the comparison trap. And unfortunately, her dad has helped push her into that comparison trap as well. Do note this, though. It does note what it says. He, Jacob loved Rachel 
more than Leah. So there was a little bit of something in his heart for Leah. It's like, you know, he just loved Rachel more, like a lot more than he loved Leah. And so there is some level of, of affection there. It just could not match his affection for Leah. And what we will see is that these will be difficult years for Leah. They will play games with her already low self-esteem and confidence as she will always know that Jacob's heart is truly with her sister. She will also know the role that she played in getting married to Jacob. A bitter root like resentment or envy or comparison will produce sour fruit, like the sour fruit of compromise. We look at our life and we don't like who we became because we compromised who we were. And then how about this? We may compromise our relationships, the ones we love. Comparison will do that. Don't miss this in the story. It's, it's, it's like we can talk about it, but do you really get it? Like these are two sisters. <laughs> these are two sisters. And yeah, blood sisters. And boy, what a rivalry. What hatred is seeping up between them. A root of bitterness is growing in each of their lives. Genesis 30, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, see Rachel's got the, she's envying too, so it's not just Leah. She envied her sister. She said, Jacob, give me children or I shall die. (laughs) So now she's upset with Jacob. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And all of this is just because they're all caught up in the comparison trap here or the effects of it. These roots of bitterness. Then she said, here is my servant Bella. Go into her so she may give birth on my behalf that even I may have children through her. So she gave, her, gave him her servant Bella as a wife and Jacob went into her. And Bella conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servants Billa conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings have I wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. So here she is wrestling with her sister, fighting with her sister. It's this vicious sort of reality of the comparison trap and the envy they have for each other. The dysfunction that has seeped into their relationship. You know what's, what's interesting and I feel extremely blessed, I really do, that, that I live in a family, we have six siblings, and man, I tell you, I don't think we've ever been mad at each other. I can't remember a time we've had any animosity or any anger or any frustration. I mean, everybody just knows that I'm always right, and we get along great, so hey. But no, we, we have a great, I, just, I know that's not always the case. It's a blessing. Um, and our relationship with our parents, it's just, a, just an amazing thing. There's a lot of dysfunctional families in the world today. And if you have that in your family, don't feel too terrible because you know what's amazing is the scripture is full of extremely dysfunctional families. In fact, the book of Genesis, just look at the book of Genesis. Look at the dysfunctional families that seep through the pages of Genesis. Cain and Abel. And Cain kills Abel. Isaac and Ishmael, and I, they're at odds, and Ishmael makes fun of Isaac, and, I, and Ishmael and his mom are kicked out of the household, and Jacob and Esau, Jacob deceives Esau. Leah and Rachel, we, we're looking at the story right now, and then Joseph versus his brothers. You look at all of those relationships, I mean, I mean, is it any wonder that Joseph and his brothers had issues? Is it any wonder at all? 
And in all of these relationships, envy and jealousy were at the heart of the dysfunctional relationship. The lesson is clear. Comparison in the family will impede it. It will damage our relationships. And so I saw something else this week, for what it's worth. All of us parents, all of us raising kids today, this just really blew me away. I, just, I never saw this before. So just, just a, a word of warning, a word of encouragement, whatever it is. Sibling rivalry and dysfunction is prevalent in the Bible. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to look at a few of these relationships. This is just in, like the book of Genesis. You can go to David's family. David's family is all messed up. But, but look at this. Ishmael versus Isaac and Ishmael have these huge problems. You know who, you know who exasperated the problems between the two? Mom. Jacob and Esau have serious issues. Who exasperated the problems between Jacob and Esau? Mom. Leah and Rachel have serious problems in their relationship. Who exasperated all the problems? Dad. Joseph and his brothers. All that dysfunction between Leah and Rachel and, and, and Jacob and, and then, then Joseph hating his brothers and selling them into slavery after they almost killed him. And all of that dysfunction goes back to really his dad. Amazing. Look at this verse here. So sibling rivalry and dysfunction was often exasperated by the parents. That just blew me away. Like, we're supposed to be the ones to help everybody get along in the family. And in the first, in the first book of the Bible, all these families have all these issues, and mom and dad are at the heart of it. Genesis 25, this is Jacob's story. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob, the husband in the story today, was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. I mean, come on! Mom and dad, get together! And Rebekah's the one that takes Jacob in and tells him, deceive your dad, deceive your brother, steal the birthright. You can't trust God to work these things out. You've got to do it yourself. Wow. I found this quote, plain favorites. For example, being quick to punish one child even wrongly while quick to dismiss the guilt of another. Or parents that are more apt to listen to the whims and desires of one child while ignoring the needs or requests of another. In essence, displaying bias, even positive or negative towards a child in comparison with siblings. Pretty powerful, pretty powerful. Proverbs 24, 23. Here are some further sayings of the wise. It is wrong to show favoritism when passing judgment. For what it's worth, for what it's worth. Just a warning of what happened in Scripture. And if you have dysfunction in your family, just step back and say, you know what? They had it all throughout the Bible. This is a tough thing to do. And for grandparents, let me just say this. If you're going to spoil, spoil your grandkids, spoil them equally. <laughs> okay? Spoil them all equally. Yeah, there you go. A bitter root will produce sour fruit. Never play favorites. It only does damage. A bitter root will produce sour fruit. Here is our third warning today. Uh, here we go. Comparison. It will impede our joy. Comparison will impede our joy. It will steal our joy. It will destroy the joy that we have in our life. <clears throat> In fact, when I am caught up in the comparison trap, I'm often defined by my worst day, week, or year. As we said, comparison can lead to an attitude of pride or an attitude of insecurity. And often, though, my comparison will lead to my feeling ashamed, inferior, inadequate, isolated, which is how Leah seems to feel, which is ironic because she's having all these kids. Rachel's not, yet she feels inferior to Rachel. Isn't that such a sad, sad 
reality. Once again, here's the thing. This is exactly what Leah wants from Jacob. His affirmation, his attention, his affection. That's what she desperately wants. That's what she can't seem to find. And how is she going to deal with that? We'll see in a minute how she deals with that. But I just want you to see how this comparison trap stole her joy. Going on in the story, going on, uh, here we are. When the, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Here's here's how she names her three kids. Look at this. The first three kids. Reuben, behold a son, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. So she describes her life by her affliction. And then look at the second son, Simeon, meaning God has heard. She says, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, for he has given me this son also. And then the third son is Levi, which means uh, basically joined to or attached. Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him these three sons. And so here's the point. What What does Leah want from Jacob? affirmation, attention, affection. How does she describe her life? Afflicted, hated, and rejected. That's, how, that's her life. That's, that's her, she's having all these kids. Rachel can't have kids. She's having all these kids. And yet this is her life. And she has lost all the joy that's found in giving birth to children. Why? Because she's in the comparison trap and it has stolen her joy. And again, Rachel is just as much caught up in this because she is jealous that she can't have kids. She's she's envious that she can't have children for Jacob as well. She has the love of her life, a man who worked 14 years for her, and she is not happy. Comparison has stolen her joy as well. How is the comparison trap stealing the joy in your life today? Where? How? Why? It's like Ray. Ray lives in Michigan and Ray's going to the Smoky Mountains for a vacation and he's at the Smoky Mountains for a great week away. And the whole time that, that he's there, Ray can't enjoy himself. Why? Because his neighbor got to go to Hawaii. And the Smoky Mountains can't compete to the beaches and the caves of Hawaii, right? Or Linda just got a new to her 2020 Linton Continental and it is, it's the top line of the model and she loves that car until her neighbor pulls in with the tesla you know everybody wants a tesla and it's funny how the comparison trap will steal our joy and we'll lose sight of all the blessings that we had now there's a little lesson in here two 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 key points i'm going to end with today to how do we deal with the comparison trap how do we detox from this right because it will seep into our life and it will cause us to compromise. It will steal our joy. It comes in. It, it, uh, it seeds the power to other people to determine my value and my worth. A bitter root will produce sour fruit. How do we deal with these bitter roots? And I could give you a bunch of practical pointers. But I'm going to give you just two simple keys. You can apply them in your own life. You can say, how does this work itself out in my life? How do I, how do I use these keys in my life? to deal with me to deal with the um, issues I'm faced in my own life 
So, back to Genesis 29. <clears throat> how to break free from the comparison trap, how to get rid of the pride, get rid of the shame, whatever side of the coin you're on, that false sense of security, of pride, that, you know, that, that false reality of shame. How, how do we break free from these? Genesis 29. Child number four. She's, she's had three child. Here's our fourth child for Leah. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Simple little verse, but I want you to notice what happened here. Notice what happened here. And the key number one, the key to overcoming our circumstances is to embrace an attitude of worship. It's just to deliberately embrace an attitude of worship, which is exactly what Leah does. It's just fascinating to stop and think about this. Like, this time, this time, you know what, I'm going to worship. I've had three kids, and I've griped, and I've complained, because I'm hated, and I'm afflicted, and I'm rejected, and I want, I want his attention and affection and affirmation, and, and, and you know what, this time, I'm just going to praise God, because I, I have four kids now, and... Rachel hasn't had any. I've, 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 I've given him four children. I'm just going to rejoice in that simple reality. And so she names him Judah. This time I will praise the Lord. That's what it means. Judah is praise. This time I will praise the Lord. And then I want you to see what happens from here on out because she goes on and, and then she stops having kids. So then she gives her servant, Ziplah, to Jacob, and Jacob has two children with Ziplah, and then she has two more children. She has a total of six kids, and two, of them are, two more from her servant. Eight of the, the children, nine actually with, I think Dinah was hers as well. Nine of 13 kids come through Leah. So she names Gad, good fortune has come. She names the next child Asher, happy, happy one. Happy am I, for women have called me happy what it says in the scripture and do you notice the attitude adjustment and this is the thing nothing about her circumstances have changed excuse me nothing has changed jacob hasn't changed she still lives in the same home she still has the same situation all around her same circumstance the only thing that changed was her attitude changed and when her attitude changed her life changed she got her joy back she got out of that comparison trap and Things made a huge difference in her life. Then she goes on and she has a fifth child. Then she starts having kids again. <clears throat> and she named Ishkar, means man of hire or there is a reward because she gave her servant to Jacob to keep having kids. So she was blessed, she said, with another one. And then there is Zebulun, which means exalted house. God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. And all the, the shift in her life, it's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. All it was was what? An attitude change. This time I will praise the Lord. This time I'm not going to gripe and complain and bemoan my situation. This time I'm just going to praise God because look what he's doing. <clears throat> look what he's doing in my life. Key number two, the key to unlocking the comparison trap in your life and my life, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. I mean, how wild is that? The key to all our problems, again, it's the gospel. And you can unpack this in your own life this week, but let me just show you right here that if you're caught in the comparison trap in some way, if you're struggling with envy, jealousy, and resentment, the gospel has the key to set you free. 
And what's fascinating is that both Leah and Rachel, they missed the gospel in their own life. Like they didn't need any of the sibling rivalry. The gospel, if they had just... If they had just grabbed a hold of the gospel and just saw the gospel in their own life. And you're, you're probably saying, well, wait a minute, the gospel, that came with Jesus, right? When he... No, they had, they were, there was a good news for them. <clears throat> there was an Old Testament gospel, the good news. Christ came to fulfill the good news. and It's a, it's a slightly different gospel of grace, but they had a good news back then. They just missed it. Let me show you what it looks like here and. I have gotten to the point, now you've probably picked up on this, right? Anytime I'm in the Old Testament studying and I look at a story like this, I just simply say, okay, where's the gospel? The gospel's in here somewhere. This this is some way pointing us to the cross and the empty tomb. How do I find it? Where do I find it? I did that this week and it's pretty amazing to stop and think about what unfolds here. First, Jacob marries two wives, right? Two women. There's two women. You know what the two women represent? Yeah, the two covenants. They're representative of the two covenants, the covenant of law and the covenant of grace. So let's start with Leah. Leah, who had these weak eyes, right? <clears throat> you know what Leah's name means? Leah's name means weak or tired. Leah's name means weak, weary or tired. Her eyes are weak. Her name means weary or tired. That's what Leah means. That's what her name means. And she represents the covenant of law. Remember this verse? Jesus used this verse. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And for all those that were under the weight of the law and were burdened and were wearied because of the law, Christ comes along and says, hey, I'm going to satisfy the law. I'm going to fulfill the law. And we see that in this story here that Leah she represents the law because what did, what, what did Jacob do? Jacob worked for seven years and then he got the reward. Like he worked and, and then he worked in faith. He worked believing that if he did this work that he would get Rachel and he was deceived of course and got the law first and, or got Leah first and we'll tell you why in a minute. But, but here's the point that he worked in faith, didn't deserve her, but worked in faith and at the end of the time he worked for something. That's the reality. So Leah is the covenant of law that Jacob worked for. It's a picture of what Christ did for us at the cross. He did the work, really. And then Rachel, what does her name mean? Her name means you or a female sheep. And we don't have time to dig into that today. There's some implications there maybe that will be interesting to discuss. But here's what Rachel represents, the covenant of grace. Because Jacob didn't work for Rachel, he worked from Rachel. Like, yeah, like he was given Rachel and then he worked for seven years. That's the, that's the gospel of grace, that's us. We get saved today. We don't, we don't work to be saved, we work because we have been saved. We're saved and then God comes along and just, and just encourages us to do good works. We're created for good works. It's a, it's a beautiful picture here of law and grace. And just understand that in the story, Leah had to be married first. Law had to be dealt with first. The law had to be satisfied first before grace could come. And Christ came and fulfilled the law. Fulfilled the law at Calvary. And he pours out his grace into our life. And then we today operate from this position of grace. We serve him. We love him. We obey him. Because we are new creations in Christ because of his 
grace. And the law had to be dealt with first so that grace could come and grace is satisfied in Christ. But here's what Leah and Rachel missed, both of them. Long grace. You know what they were married to? Leah and Rachel were both married to the same, what? They were married to the promise. They were married to the promise. Jacob is the promise. There's this promise that God had given the Jewish people of a Messiah. There's a promise he gave you and me back with Adam and Eve that a Messiah would come and set us free and they're both married to the promise. They didn't need all this rivalry and all this fighting. They just needed to trust the plans and the purposes of God. God was using them. God was using them. And maybe that's what happened in Leah's life when she said, this time I will praise the Lord. She got her head screwed on right and she understood, hey, you know what? You know what? God is doing something amazing here and I'm missing out on it. Just two points of application for you and I here, right? Both have a role in bringing about the 12 tribes of Israel. So, so both of them are involved in this great plan of God to bring about these 12 tribes of Israel. And they just need, needed to discover what their role is. But here it is for you and me. Comparison then causes me to lose sight of my inheritance in Christ. I need to identify the gospel in my life. And so often we, we might get out there and we're envious of somebody because of some job they've got or some possession they have or some vacation they took. We're envious of them. And they don't even know Christ. How absurd is that? Like, how could you ever envy somebody who doesn't even know Christ as their Savior? Like, all the spiritual blessings I have... The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If you have the Lord, you have everything you will ever want or need. Two weeks ago, this is the verse, speaking about the, the angry old man we used to be, and now we're the, you know, the joyful new man in Christ, and it's just like, just don't, don't go back and think like that angry old man. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all. Like Christ is all we need. Christ, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Don't need to be envious, don't need to compare, don't need to resent anybody else for anything they have that I don't have. Christ is all and in all. For Leah, stop looking to Jacob, look up. Stop looking to, Leah, to Jacob for your, you know, your affection, your affirmation, your attention, look up. You have a heavenly father who will give you everything you could ever want. How crazy it is, right, when we don't realize all that we have in Christ. And then, of course, again, uh, compar- co- comparison causes me to lose sight of my identity in Christ. Like I lose sight of who I am in Christ. I just lose sight of that reality because look what it says here again, right? Christ is all and in all. I shared this a couple weeks ago, but every one of us in this room who know Christ, we all share Christ. The same Christ that's in me is in you and, and we don't need to envy each other. We don't need to compare ourselves to each other. Never envy someone else's spiritual gift or someone else's ministry or someone else's impact or someone else's biblical not. Don't. 
You know what? Develop, find and develop your own spiritual gift. God has given you one. Just find and develop it. Don't wish you were that person. Say, no, God's given me a gift. What is my gift? I'm going to find it and develop it. I'm going to seize my opportunities. I'm going to grow my knowledge. And just know that no one in this room is more important than anyone else. I'm certainly not. There's not a person in this room that's more valuable, more worth more than, because Christ is all and in all. Christ is the standard in all of us. We all have our unique roles to play, our unique gifts to use. Find them, use them, and let's get out of the comparison trap. And this even applies to churches. We're not competing with each other. Pastors, we're not competing with each other. You go to those pastors' conferences and everybody stands around, yeah, what's your attendance? What's your attendance? You know, it's like, you know, and you, (laughs) why do we do that? Why do we do that? And I talked about that before, how God dealt with that with me and just revealed to me one time, I don't have any, any, any envy in my heart for any other ministry around here, any other church around here. I don't. That's not me. If those thoughts come up, it's somebody else. And my desire is to see as many people come to Christ in all of these churches all around our area. What a beautiful, what a beautiful, what a beautiful thing. And just know that through His grace, we are married to the promise, an unbreakable promise. I got one last thing to show you here, but here it is. A bitter root will produce sour fruit. The bitter fruit of resentment and envy, comparison. And so just know this, comparison seeds the power to others to determine my worth, how valuable I am. Comparison leads to compromise, and comparison impedes our joy. It impedes our joy, and how do we deal with it? Well, we just talked about that, being deliberate in our worship and then looking to the gospel. And here's what's really fascinating. Let me show you something I ran across and I kind of had to vet this through and say, "Eh, you know what, I think there's something really powerful here. Here's the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. I want you to see this. Reuben, behold, a son is born to us. Simeon, one who hears. Levi is attached. Judah means praise the Lord. Dan means he judged. Naphtali means my struggle. Gad means good fortune. Asher means happiness. Ishkar means reward. Zebulun means honor. Joseph, when he was born, meant add to my family. And Benjamin either means the son of the right hand, like as that would mean favor, or the son of righteousness. Some say the son of righteousness. And you put these all together, and this is so amazing. This is so amazing. Listen to what it says here. The names of the 12 sons of Jacob tell the story of the redemptive gospel they tell the story that the 12 sons of jacob they actually tell us the story of the redemptive gospel here it is behold a son is born unto us one who hears us and became attached to us praise the lord he judged our struggle and brought us good fortune happiness reward honor he added us to his family and called us the sons and daughters of his right hand of his favor or the sons and daughters of righteousness how amazing is that and this is what Leah and Rachel were a part of they were giving birth to the very sons that would tell the redemptive story it's like why are you fighting with each other why do you envy one another why are you comparing yourselves to one another look up look to your heavenly father and just realize how he is using you 12 children amidst the worst deception great dysfunction and incredible pain we see that God is working that uh, he's declaring his plan, he's exalting his name, he's fulfilling his purposes, and he's pointing to his promises, and he's setting us all free from the comparison trap. Let's pray. God, thank you. 
Thank you that you're always working. Thank you that you've been working for 4,000 years, 6,000 years now. And you're working to set us free from this thing of envy and resentment and the, and the comparison trap and, and, and just the roots of bitterness that rise up in our life. I don't know what this looks like for each one of us today, what it looks like in our home, in our personal life, on the job, wherever it is that we're dealing with this, Lord, just set us free today. May we look and may we see that, that for Leah and Rachel, you had a plan in, in their existence amidst all that adversity and all that fighting and all that. You were declaring the redemptive plan through their 12 children. And today you want to declare the redemptive plan through our life, through our family, through our children, through our church. All we got to do is let you do your thing. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.